Hi, this is Kalia Colston. And I'm Dylan Bird. And this is the podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoy the podcast. And if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website. Last week, New South Wales Supreme Court Justice Ian Harrison found former school teacher Chris Dawson guilty of murdering his wife Lynette in 1982. The case was thrown into the spotlight by the Teacher's Pet podcast produced by The Australian, which has reportedly been downloaded some 60 million times. Its host, Hedley Thomas, won a Gold Walkley for his reporting, and the podcast has been widely celebrated for bringing more attention to this case. But in his verdict, Justice Harrison took aim at the egregious pre-trial publicity surrounding the case and the podcast assumption of Chris Dawson's guilt. And so what should we make of the role of true crime podcasts, which have proved hugely popular, particularly since the advent of Serial back in 2014? Siobhan McHugh is an honorary associate professor at University of Sydney. She's an internationally renowned podcaster and radio documentary maker whose many credits include work on The Age and Sydney Morning Herald's podcast, Journalistic Investigations, Phoebe's Fall and The Last Voyage of the Pong Sioux. Siobhan, thanks for coming on Triple R. Welcome. Great to be here. Thanks, Dylan. And so what are your thoughts on the extent to which we should credit the teacher's pet with making the Chris Dawson trial possible? Well, it's it's a very uh, complex uh, sort of case because clearly the podcast did draw attention, huge attention to what had been, uh, you know, a cold case. But uh, in its execution, it ran very close, as several justices have pointed out, to almost contaminating um, witnesses, etc., to the point that a fair trial could not have been obtained. And it was such a, a close call as to whether or not Dawson would get a permanent stay and, and could never have been brought to trial. And in the end, you know, the, the justices decided instead to just delay it and let the podcast settle and that people, the public mind, would people would forget about it. And this was obviously when they were still contemplating the jury trial, potentially. But in the end, it was allowed to proceed with a judge-only trial. But it did come terribly close to... Um, irony of ironies, um, given that he has been found guilty of of letting him never be brought to trial. Yeah, I mean, it really does raise questions about that that balance in in storytelling or investigating and informing and and in the, and entertaining audiences and and the role of the media in this in this area. I mean, what what is it that took it so close to the edge in in this case, Shabon? Well, I mean, I think it was the fact that you know, as uh, as the as the judge said, um, I uh, its object was, and I'm quoting uh, now, Justice Fullerton, was to incite prejudice against the applicant in a sensationalist fashion, with a view to convincing listeners of his guilt. So that is going uh, further than the role of investigative journalism. I mean, that's falling into advocacy. Uh, I think if we take a kind of, I've been thinking about this, you know, knowing we're going to talk today. I think there are very clear pros and cons about true crime podcasts. So the cons are, yes, that we're using um, tragedy, we're exploiting victims and their families just for titillation and for entertainment. And you see that a lot on the kind of, um, you know, those host-read podcasts like Crime Junkie. 
which is a very popular one in the US. Uh, you see that with my favorite murder, where it's it's you know you're making fun out of what has been a personal tragedy for somebody. Um, but there's also other issues just in terms of uh, journalism. I mean, there's often plagiarism involved. It really annoys me when some of these podcasts rehash the work, the primary investigative work of some journalists, and they basically just rip it off. And Crime Junkie is one that had to take several episodes down after after complaints were made. And it can also, of course, as we've just alluded to, pervert the course of justice. So there's all those reasons uh, that are bad about true crime podcasts. On the other side, you can reinvigorate a cold case and you can get justice for people who, who might have been overlooked. You can influence the judicial system for the better. For You know, serial season three shines a light on the inequities of the whole um, justice system in Ohio and the bias of judges and all of that. And you can help victims who are inclined to be ignored. So Indigenous people, for instance, there was a famous series called Finding Cleo mm. um, set in Canada. We did one with Wrong Skin. Um, and uh, Blood Guilt is a recent one in Australia that suggests that a woman's murder was overlooked because she was a sex worker. So, you know, there are good things that true crime podcast journalism can do but it's a question of upholding ethical journalism. Absolutely. And and it's, it's kind of interesting thinking about the huge popular, popularity of true crime podcasts. And, you know, even some people might, might say openly that it's a bit of a guilty pleasure for them, that they, they do find it entertaining, despite some of the ethical issues that you've just raised, Siobhan. But, but thinking about The Teacher's Pet, I mean, I, I have to admit, I listened to a couple of episodes years ago and didn't continue with it because it just sort of didn't resonate with me. But but what's your impression of of that podcast itself? I suppose in in, in the approach to investigative journalism um, and some of those potential um, issues that that almost made the trial of Chris Dawson itself impossible. Well, I found it very hard to get past the dire execution and lack of craft and poor audio quality that was involved in a medium that relies heavily, uh, well, relies totally on audio, basically. Um, I mean, it was just so lazy. He didn't go out of the office for most of the interviews. He just relied on phone interviews, sometimes the quality. I remember some solicitor in, I think it was Singapore, that, you know, you, you just couldn't, it was breaking up. You could barely hear what he was saying. I mean, it was sloppy just at that basic level i remember when he went to the home of one person i think it was the the, the, the milanovic the coroner uh, the only person on mic was hedley thomas which is ridiculous when you go to somebody's home to interview somebody uh you you should get them on mic i mean it was just this lack of the narcissism involved was extraordinary and the lack of respect for the medium uh, that really annoyed and irritated me because also it it undermines the impact of what you're trying to do and uh, it was it was it, it sort of set a very low bar for true crime podcasts everywhere given the given the um, popularity it had so that was one thing in terms of the ethics I mean I think you know it came out in the trial that. You know, he was he was leading the witness with some of his um, some of his uh, questioning. So there was the babysitter who had seen him 
flick a tea towel at Lynn in the kitchen. And then he said, did he did he flick it or whip her with it? And then she said he whipped her. So you're mm. kind of planting ideas in that way. Um, now, she had said, talked about him hitting this babysitter, had talked about uh, Dawson hitting Lynn before, but it was just not neutral um, journalism th- that is best practice. So I think there, there was, I mean, it was also like just ghastly in its kind of um, rambling and repetitiveness. And uh, again, quoting from the judge, the judge said the material was presented in a highly repetitive, prejudicial, sensationalist and inflammatory way. And she uh, she said that uh, he was uh, the, his conduct was, quote, eloquent of a lack of ethical responsibility as a journalist. So um, it didn't it, look, it did very clearly uh, put pressure on the on the police to come up with something although as we now know the police had already decided to charge Dawson uh, in April and the podcast didn't drop till May so you know even though Hedley Thomas um, seems to think or gave the impression that his podcast caused the trial to happen actually the DPP had decided to um, go ahead with the prosecution and the judgment says the decision to prosecute was not, in fact, influenced by the podcast. So, again, I think this is just hubris. Yeah, and I mean, and with, with everything that you just said, it, you know, it, it's award-winning, it, it's popular, and it, um, you know, leads me to think what influence has that particular podcast had on the what looks like growth with regards to, to cr- true crime podcasting, not just in Australia, but... Um, you know, in other other parts of the world. Mm. Look, it's massive. I, uh, and I mean, the thing is that um, researching the history of true crime, as you said, uh, Dylan, it, it is a genre that has always fascinated us. And it's partly if you read, there's something like 20,000 hits. If you hit Google Scholar for a true crime podcast, there's something like 20,000 hits out there, just even in the academic world of analyzing this. So it is a thing. But actually, when I looked into the history of it, the word sensationalism was coined in the 19th century. And uh, there are academics who've looked at the history of this, and it goes back practically to the start of the printing press. Uh, Pamphlets printed in the mid-16th century in Germany about um, horrendous crimes were tied to emotional kind of delivery. So it does satisfy some kind of vicarious need that we as humans have to try and understand the dark side of humanity. And I think that's a valid line of inquiry and analysis. You know, that sits side by side with justice and injustice. And and that it can be done really well. I mean, the obvious, the obvious one to point to in terms of the high mark of true crime podcast is in the dark, which comes from uh, the US, um, a, a from uh, yeah Minnesota Public Radio, I think, and uh, they actually succeeded in getting a man out of prison who had been wrongly convicted and served over twenty years in prison, Curtis Flowers, because of the racism of the DA, which the podcast exposed. But the amount of work that took—I mean, they went through you know, thousands of files to to find that the juries had been rigged by this guy who had charged him with the same crime six times. And that is the kind of journalism that should be applauded and supported. 
And it was beautifully done. The, the interview that um, Madeleine Barron, the host, did with Curtis Flowers when he finally gets out is one of the most luminous interviews I've ever heard. It was absolutely beautiful to listen to. And he was remarkably free of bitterness, even though he'd lost 25 or six years of his life. And that was one true crime podcast I did get to the end of, so I totally agree with, with your sentiments there, Siobhan. But, but thinking in particular about the, I suppose, the popularity attached to true crime podcasts in particular, noting that, you know, true crime itself has a very long lineage, it's long captivated us, but, but the, the attachment, I suppose, people have to the audio form for telling true crime stories. I mean, you talked about the, the plagiarism that you can detect in some of these podcasts, you know, anyone can make one and they, they do often play on um, the, the really sort of nasty, gory details sometimes of, of some of these crimes that are, that are perpetrated. But do you think there's anything sort of about podcasting itself that, that is allowing for a more salacious storytelling approach to true crime, looking perhaps at the huge success and celebrity status of people like Hedley Thomas and, um, you know, Sarah Koenig in the case of Serial um, and others who have found real success with true crime in podcast form? Well, the thing about podcast form is that audio is a superb conveyor of emotion. And given that you're not looking at somebody's face, you're just hearing the voice, it does confer an added intimacy, um, especially if you're listening via headphones in your ears. And so you do feel this strong sense of connection. So if you're whether you're hearing Adnan Syed talking to Sarah Koenig in Serial from prison or uh, hearing you know, uh, Lynn Dawson's um, brother or, or, or friends talking about her, it does have an emotional pull. And that is the, 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 the sublime power of audio, which can be used, it, you know, for, for uh, very good purposes to engender a sense of um, empathy. And that's how I like to see it used. Um but again, um, it's interesting, actually, just as a side note on, on the use of audio, uh, we, when, I, when we were making Phoebe's Fall, which was a uh, podcast about the death of a 24-year-old woman, Phoebe Hansjack, who uh, was found at the bottom of a garbage chute in a luxury apartment block in St Kilda Road back in, in about 2010, um, we had to have a lawyer with us in studio because we were very concerned. Um, we, we, we obviously were, had to be very wary of uh, defamation and didn't want to go across a line uh, when we were talking about her relationship with her then boyfriend. And uh, we had one, I remember one time uh, the lawyer was in the studio, literally going through the script line by line. And he was working from a transcript and I'm a great believer in working off the tape, not the actual print. But for ease of reading, he was just reading it off his transcript. And there was a bit where Phoebe's grandfather, Lorne, who was a retired police officer, in the transcript, it said there was a great stench about the inquest. And he thought it was said with such force that it was compromising. And he said, we have to delete the word stench. And I said, no, I said, if you actually listen to the audio, he doesn't say there was a great stench about the inquest. He actually says it in a very neutral tone. There was a great stench, just like that. And so we got up the audio and when he heard the actual audio version, he okayed it. So just that little tonal difference 
that you can pick up in audio that is missing in print is remarkably important and something that I think we, we, we tend to overlook. Yeah, that's absolutely fascinating story. Uh, Siobhan, Siobhan McHugh's with us. Um, we're speaking about um, podcasting and, and true crime. And, uh, I mean, with regards to the the Chris Dawson case, the, the teacher's pet case, um, there was, com- you know, a lot of media reporting about it, obviously, about about the role of the podcast, about the, the case itself. And, you know, one line stood out to me in reporting that, you know, courts are fighting a losing battle to keep things as they always were. And I, I guess with the history you told earlier, Siobhan, about things changing over hundreds of years, um, you know, where, you know, does podcasting and does true crime podcasting put us in a different legal situation than we were before? Well, it does, it, it does to a certain degree in that uh, people who are not even trained as journalists are able to make uh, a podcast, uh, you know, it might be not a very good quality podcast, but they can, they have the means to put it out there because there is quite a low technical barrier to entry in podcasting compared to say making a film or something or, uh, you know, whatever. Um, And uh, so in that sense, uh, people are having a go at, at podcasts and, um, making pretty kind of um, low life sort of stuff at the bottom end of of of, of the kind of spectrum, and we know there's 5.2 million podcasts on Spotify now, so there's a huge amount of podcasts out there. So yeah, um, I mean, I at the high end, you know, I see podcasting, certainly narrative podcasts, as somewhere between uh, an art form and journalism, and I love ones that are that are well done in 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 that way and i kind of just it it grieves me to to sort of see people just um you know abusing the potential that podcasts have to tell stories and to do it well and to elevate us and edify us in whatever way they can and that includes by developing fully fleshed out characters the people you interview as real people and all of that the sort of stuff that we've seen done so well by the people who you know started a, a lot of this people people like radio lab and all of that so um yeah i mean i don't know what can be done really i mean obviously the law is one recourse um i thought it was uh, w- one other side thing that occurred to me when i was revisiting my my notes on um, the teacher's pet was that you know there was also the very problematic way in which they described um, the relationship between Chris Dawson, who was a teacher, and a girl of 16, who was known then as JC, the babysitter, as having an intense sexual relationship. And, you know, as Dawson moving in what was called his teenage lover. And, you know, this girl, there, there was actually, as somebody pointed out, a social worker called Gemma McKibben at Melbourne Uni pointed out, there was actually a Carnal Knowledge Act in New South Wales that applied, where at the very least, they should have been using words like, you know, exploitation, not relationship, because apparently the she should have been 17, not 16, in order for that, um, that, uh, that sort of sexual... 
um, um, uh, relationship to be to be allowed to happen, and that was never properly queried in the podcast. I mean, that was that was a kind of a side issue to the to the alleged murder that was just sort of accepted as perfectly okay by by the the podcast. Yeah, it's 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 interesting to to think about, I suppose, what can be missed out in relation to the critical appraisal of of podcast journalism, podcast true crime, compared to other more traditional forms. Because I mean, I'm thinking also of the the Caliphate saga. For listeners who might have you know heard of this a number of years ago, the New York Times put out a a podcast called Caliphate, which they then um, sort of had to admit that there sort of wasn't enough journalistic due diligence done to um, absolutely sort of affirm that one of their, their main sources for that podcast was who he said he was. And there was some suggestion from memory from the, the Times editorial team that because it was a, a story in podcast form, they hadn't had the same checks and balances they might have for, for a sort of standard um, piece of journalism that they would publish. And even sort of reading some of the commentary surrounding the teacher's pet, I mean, Headley Thomas and, and the team at The Australian have been widely celebrated for bringing public attention to this saga, but there hasn't been much analysis of the things that you've raised in terms of the choice of words um, and, and the framing of the nature of his relationship, um, you know, with, with the girl in that podcast as well. So, so do you, I mean, do you think that, that there sometimes can be these nuances in audio that, that are missed, which, which might be picked up by um, journalistic, um, investigative journalism in print form, for example? I, I do. And actually, um, I think it's partly because uh, unless you have a transcript to accompany your listening or to help you mine mine uh what what's been said it is a very time consuming process to have to go through and and listen in real time to audio content i mean that is the great strength of of audio that that it's something that only happens in real time and it, that builds a kind of a um a, a pace and, and 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 that adds to the to the narrative impact but uh, it also does make it Harder. I mean, you know, the teacher's pet was something like 18 hours. I did, for my sins, listen to it all in order to be able to critique it. And I wish I could get that 18 hours of my life back, <laughs> but um, <laughs> I never will. But um, anyway, uh, you know, um, it, it, it was very, very rambling. And certainly I think there is a movement in podcasting now to provide transcripts, which also helps for people who have... Um, deafness issues or you know uh, listening disabilities um so there is there is a movement as as an as a gesture of inclusion to uh create transcripts and they can be fairly easily made by by uh, ai software so i think that's one good step that is would be important to uh, to see podcasts move in that direction well, we thank you for investing 18 hours and a little bit more in listening to The Teacher's Pet and, and having a chat to us um, this morning on Triple R. Thanks so much, for John, uh, Siobhan. Really appreciate your time. Thank you. You're welcome. Lovely to talk to you, Dylan and Carly. Yeah, likewise. Siobhan McHugh there, Honorary Associate Professor at the University of Technology, Sydney, also a podcaster and radio documentary maker and passionate advocate of, of good audio storytelling as well, talking all about the Teacher's Pet podcast and the, the guilty verdict um, involving Chris Dawson, which was handed down just last week. Triple R on FM, digital, online, on demand, podcasts and via the app.
And this week, the Climate Bill, which will enshrine Australia's 43% emissions reduction by 2030 target into law, will be debated in the Senate. Uh, There's been quite a bit happening, actually, in energy reforms recently, including updates to building codes, commitments to increase electric vehicle take-up and more. And so it's great to have Cam Walk with us from Friends of the Earth. And uh, Cam, good morning. Good morning. And so the Climate Bill, um, it will pass the Senate. Uh, Any thoughts on, on the bill? Cam, as it's sort of heading into its last legs? It's always that dilemma, isn't it, um, of acknowledging forward movement. So previous government had a embarrassing target of 26 to 28% reduction by the end of the decade. This is 43% reduction, which is just miles ahead of where we were. But the science says we need to do so much more, and the Climate Council generally says we need a minimum of 75% reduction. So it's on the way. Um, I think the crossbench, the work of the crossbench has strengthened it. It appears to be quite a collaborative process. The government needs all the votes of the Greens plus one other crossbench, which they expect will be David Pocock, the Independent and the ACT, who's very pro-climate action. So it's it's a fantastic improvement on where we were um, and it breaks the impasse. And I think as happened in Victoria, once you set a target and you start to drive industry towards the the transformation of our energy sector, you find out you can go much faster and much deeper than you intend. So we're hoping that once this does get through, and we assume it will, that it will really start to drive um, this kind of transformation because at at present two-thirds of our electricity still comes from coal and we'll find that we can meet and beat those targets. And that's a positive story, Cam, but as part of these negotiations, we know the Greens and, and, you know, some independents as well have had to accept some form of compromise. The Greens have, have really sort of pushing for a ban on future fossil fuel projects. Where do you see that discussion going? And, and I suppose the, the debate around potential new mines and, and energy sources in that regard. Yeah, I think the Greens have played a really smart game on this where they've indicated they will support the bill even though they're not happy with it and they've been pushing to improve it. And they have pointed out that we have 114 new coal and gas projects that are headed to the Environment Minister's desk for approval under federal legislation. And if we are serious about reducing emissions, we just can't be building new coal, oil and gas projects. Um, So they are going to put forward a separate climate trigger bill which hopes to head, head off this dilemma of the Federal Environment Minister uh, approving these really unsustainable projects. There's also um, in the current bill, and it's an interesting alliance between Jackie Lambie from Tasmania and David Pocock, the you know the very green independent from the ACT, they're looking at the scientific credibility that underpins the Climate Change Act, and I think they're looking to get some amendments up which will make the information the government uses to set the target to put that in the public realm so that there's a greater level of transparency. So uh, that there's a couple of things going on, and I think that Jackie Lambie and Dave Pocock have also called on the government to scrap some aspects of the Emission Reduction Fund. So what we're doing is we had nine years of climate deniers in power, and they basically wrecked a lot of the legislative infrastructure that we're dealing with. So we're now in a reform process, and I think the work that Lambie and Pocock are doing is to kind of seeking to make the, the framework legislation that governs energy decisions a lot more transparent.
Yeah, it's interesting. I did read um, Jackie Lambie's, uh, Senator Lambie's op-ed in, I think it was the Canberra Times last week, and I actually at that moment didn't, didn't realise it, that um, the senators were working so closely together. So really, yeah, fascinating uh, uh, discussion between the ACT and Tasmanian senators there. And, I mean, talking about the rules of the game, we did also see the energy ministers uh, put out, I think it's called a communique, uh, saying that they will, committing to, um, among many things, like changing the rules of the... Um, or the ability for the energy market operator, Australia's energy market operator, AEMO, to consider emissions and the environment when making decisions. And this seems significant too, uh, Cam. Oh, this is huge. Um, so these are regular meetings, but for years they've been bogged down in party politics and, um, you know, it must have been very disappointing for people like Lily D'Ambrosio, the Victorian minister, you know, who was putting up proposals, I think, back as far as 2016 that we improve our um, household building standards. So finally, everyone's at the table. They're playing pretty nicely. And we even have the Liberals in New South Wales that this isn't about partisan politics. This is about people wanting to get on with the job. And uh, they did make emission reduction a priority for the national electricity market. And this uh, is really significant because the, the federal framework that governs our electricity, the Australian energy market operator, is obviously underpinned, acts according to the legislation. The legislation, I think, is about a quarter of a century old. It's, it's way out of date. Climate change is much more important now. We know we need to, you know, update the legislation that underpins the national electricity market. So to get um, the national operator to consider emissions reductions, to make it a priority, to take into account the climate implications of approving new sources of energy is really profound. There's more work that needs to be done because obviously... That has to go off into a process and come back to Parliament and be voted on. So it's not that it solved our problems, but it's a really significant kind of break in the deadlock that we were sitting in for many years. And we know there's been another deadlock of sorts, I suppose, or at least a, a lagging of electric vehicle uptake, uptake for some time with few incentives on um, kind of, uh, you know, reasons, I suppose, to, to acquire an electric vehicle and, um, and a range of, you know, lack of subsidies and that sort of thing. But there has been talk about emission standards and, and the potential for that to drive up um, electric vehicle uptake in Australia. Of course, we know infrastructure has been one of the, the main challenges too. Where do you see that going, given the, the commitment from energy and climate ministers recently? I think that's really good. It does kind of open up and it allows a fine-tuning of what's happening at the state and territory level with the federal government. One of the interesting bits of detail out of that meeting was a commitment... Uh, well, sorry, out of the building ministers' meeting, there's a series of parallel meetings have been happening, is to adopt new national construction standards for houses, for new-build houses, and part of that is uh, including EV charges in all new-build houses. So... Clearly, people are starting to look to the future. Um, EVs are one part of it, and often they're the new shiny thing that people love, but really, you know, it is around proximity, how we plan our cities, whether we fund public transport in new suburbs and all the rest of it, but EVs are a really important part of that solution, and it's really interesting that people are really now getting behind that. I think EVs, for most of us, are just, you know, out of the question and will be for some time, but it is good that we start to plan for the days as the price of new electric vehicles comes down. Yeah, and you, I mean, you mentioned... Uh 
you know, with regards to Minister D'Ambrosio here in Victoria, but also the building ministers meeting in general, Cam, um, we are seeing minimum standards going to shift from what they are at the moment, which is a six-star minimum to seven stars out of, um, again, another communique coming from one of these uh, cross-government meetings. I mean, this is an interesting and long-standing um, a kind of gap, I guess, you know, over 10 years it's been since we've seen an upgrade to building codes, but it's likely to see energy demand from housing reduce, which will mean we won't have to spend as much on energy infrastructure or, or when we do build it, it will allow things like electric vehicles to come online and, and the like. Uh, I mean, what's, what's your thoughts around how this might now play with regards to the building industry itself, Cam, in... in being able to to upskill. I mean, we just saw the Jobs and Skills Summit happen last week, you know, upskill and and start to increase the energy performance of of new buildings. This is the classic no-brainer. We should have been doing this. We all know, you know, average Melbourne homes, if you've lived in a share house and a rental property, that, you know, they just leak uh, energy out through the windows and the roofs and the floors, you know. We live in a temperate climate, but our housing stock is largely as if we're living in the subtropics. Um, Our housing stock is just simply not up to standard. So this is really good, but we could always go much further. They build eight-star homes and beyond in Europe, you know, because they need to, uh, particularly in the north. We could have done more. But, of course, this is a really difficult issue for governments to say we want to increase energy efficiency because then the the housing industry groups jump up and down and say this will add thousands of dollars to new build homes and then it ends up in the Murdoch crisis, young families, hopeful families locked out of their housing dreams. So it's, it's a it's a PR nightmare really in terms of how it plays out. But it's really sensible uh, policy because it does tick the environment box because these new houses will be more efficient, so we'll be burning less electricity, which is good for the climate, good for the transmission grid, but it does help with cost of living. So it's a really sensible bit of policy, um, and it will kick in next year, so it's it's coming quite soon. And the other thing that I thought was really good was it reviews accessibility standards. So we know we have an ageing population, so more of the Australian population over time will be in wheelchairs, will have limited mobility, you know, and if we're building kind of pop-up apartments, how do people actually live in them? So apart from facilitating uptake of, of photovoltaics on roofs and EV charging stations and increasing energy efficiency of the shell of the house, it also looks at new access standards, and I think that that's a really good thing. Ken Walker is our guest. He's with Friends of the Earth, talking about a range of issues in energy and environment. There's a whole lot going on at the moment. And I suppose to, to turn our attention to Victoria for a moment, Cam, there was some news that, that came out a, a week or two ago about Victoria's government-owned logging company Vic Forests um, being found to have cleared 1,000 square kilometres of protected possum habitat illegally. Um, how is this possible and, and what do you make of that finding from the audit? This is just crazy news, but it's news we hear almost every month. You know, there are, there are just hundreds and hundreds of examples where citizen scientists, that is community members that go in and, and look at how forests have been locked and how they've been regenerated, you just keep documenting this information. Sometimes it ends up in the courts, it always ends up in the media, and it just keeps on going. And it's just mind-boggling that this is still going on in the 21st century. This particular one was slightly different because it was a uh, the forest audit program is actually a, a government investigation, um, and it investigated 30 areas that had been logged in 
the summer of 2019-20, and it found that um, the that Vic Forest had breached the law in most of them and that it had cleared parts of protected habitat in some zones and um, that, that Vic Forest said it was, quote, pleased it had complied with most of the regulations. So it's kind of mind-boggling. It's, it, it's remarkable that, that, that a state government agency can just keep getting it wrong so long. Um, it's not like this is fresh news to them, but it just keeps on going on and it keeps on going on. And you, you have to wonder how, as an entity, it can be continue, it can be allowed to continue to operate. I mean, is it? Tr- I mean, I I only heard the news reports, and and uh, is it true that it was a GPS error that led to such a a destruction of habitat uh, illegally? And I, I guess I'm noting also that the 2019 20 uh, summer was. That year was when you know a huge part of the Australian landmass burnt as well. I mean, it's it is mind-boggling, and I mean, are you getting a sense, Cam, that Vic Forest will um, continue to face this kind of scrutiny, and and you know what is its future likely to be? Well, um, the current government, the Victorian government, has a commitment to end native forest logging by the end of this decade. So they're in their last, part, you know, nine years of operation, and they'll be wound up after that. Clearly, particularly after the 2019-25, there just isn't the forest left to log. Uh, much of our forest estate is in recovery mode, and we did log a lot after those fires. And we know that ecologically speaking, salvage logging after fires is the worst. Um, these problems don't seem to be going away. So, as you said, the, um, the, uh, the the question of the thousand square metres of protected lead beaters habitat, which was up near Mount Matlock, which is south of Lake Eildon, if you know that part of the state up in the mountains, that was the result of a, an error of, of use of a GPS. So, you know, these problems are clearly deeply entrenched in the Vic Forest entity. They seem to be ongoing. It's hard to see how they can maintain a kind of social licence to operate uh, in terms of their brand. It's been damaged for so long. So um, I would hope that they are wound up earlier. I would hope that we have a much earlier, much more rapid transition out of native forests. Uh, And that really means that we need to get on with the transition to make sure that workers aren't left behind and the communities that they live in aren't left behind. But, of course, we're talking about logging in some of the most beautiful parts of the state. Um, so there is a lot of tourism already going on there. There is water supply that's coming out of those mountains that feeds places like Melbourne. And, of course, we do need to provide alternative sources of timber. And the best sources of timber are going to be integrated small-scale eco-forestry operations on private land. So rather than going just for mass plantations, we need a, we need a much more ecological, a much more kind of nuanced approach to how we source our pulp and our timber in coming years. And this just boggles the mind, Cam, particularly coming out of the State of Environment report that we, you know, finally, um, you know, saw the results of just a, a month or so ago, which, of course, underlines uh, threatened species and, and, and species loss um, being such a significant issue for Australia. I mean, are there consequences from, from this sort of thing, from illegally logging what is a protected habitat for the Lebedis possum? There clearly aren't consequences that are significant enough to change what's going on in the forest. You know, as I said before, this is being reported on for many years, and yet um, in this most recent audit, they found, uh, and the auditor itself found, that Vic Forest broke the law in 25 out of 30 logging areas, and this was according to a government-commissioned audit. 
So, uh, yeah, it's just hard to see how this behaviour will change. Crazy stuff. Um, Cam, thanks for speaking with us. Uh, yeah, we've covered a lot of ground. Um, thanks heaps and we'll catch you in, in about a month's time. Three, triple, triple, triple. A new white paper from Music Victoria has outlined a number of key actions for progressing the state's music sector into the future, as well as highlighting potential opportunities. The paper, titled Priorities for the Victorian Music Industry, also highlights a range of issues, including underpayment, job security and safety in the workplace. To talk more about this, we're joined on the line by Music Victoria board member Ketchi Anale, who you also might know as former vocalist with Soul Outfit Sasquatch. Ketchi, welcome to Triple R. It's so great to have you on the show. So great to be here. Thanks for having me. And so there's been a, a lot of focus on the arts and entertainment industry over the pu- past couple of years. We know venues, bookers, artists themselves have really done it tough during COVID. I'm wondering what the need is particularly for this white paper now, I guess, given that context. Yeah, well, I mean, there's always been issues with the music industry, especially when it comes to the sustainability and infrastructure to support artists to have long careers. And like you said, it's been exacerbated by COVID with the cancellation of many gigs, festivals, opportunities for artists to make that leap within their careers. So this paper is really to start setting a benchmark for ways in which that we can support our community. And not only that, really, really um, place them in the world centre stage um, because we are lucky an industry, especially in Victoria, of amazing musicians who bring so much to the Australian culture through songwriting and performance. Yeah, and I mean, look, we've just had our... Um 10-day on-air radiothon here and, and a lot of um, the broadcasters and a lot of the the subscribers to the station are talking about celebrating music culture and the, the, um, the incredible talent we've got in Melbourne. So we've just been go- going on about it, really. Um, but, I mean, you put some other numbers around it um, with regards to value to GDP and, and employment and things like that. I mean, what what is the, the kind of, um, in crude terms, the value of, of the music industry in... in Victoria. Yeah, so to put it in a in a kind of quick summary, um, the music industry in Victoria creates over one hundred and sixteen thousand jobs. That's with musicians and and the people that surround music itself. So we're talking about lighting, sound guys, production, managers, publicists, media, all that. And the music industry, especially in Victoria, is has a return on investment of $3 for every dollar spent in the year, which equates to over $1.7 billion, which is just phenomenal considering the just like that we're a, a state within a country delivering so much impact um, through music. Yeah, absolutely. And and I suppose to, to drill down on some of the, the key findings coming out of this white paper, I mean, it's, it's quite astounding. Just mention one of them. You found that one in four gigs are unpaid for artists, I'm, I'm imagining. I mean, did that surprise you at all? Of course, you know, being a, a performer, a, um, a musician for a long time with Sasquatch? Um, to be honest with you, it didn't. Mm. Um, I guess one of the downfalls of our industry, and I guess... It's 
a downfall and something that we see that we're kind of lucky to have is that the musicians in our industry are really passionate. They love the craft of music. They love being artists and they would they enjoy every opportunity to be able to share and perform their music to a crowd of potential audience and, and followers. Unfortunately, that means that they're susceptible to financial abuse and other abuses, which we found out through um, other reporting that has recently come out. Um, and so we have this deficit in that people are not financially stable or given um, some sort of security around the work that they do, whether that be financial support or contracts being um, uh, completely seen through by vendors or even just having to come up with alternative methods to do their performances because of the impact of COVID, like people being sick or unwell and having to instead jump on to doing online performances, which may be free. Um, I think as well, during COVID, we saw a lot of online performing, which a lot of artists are really happy to jump on and do because they were just hungry and craving like being able to perform, especially those people who had released singles and albums and have had tours and really wanting to still be there for their fans in the darkest time that I think we've seen in a very long time. But as a result of that, in those areas, again, they've um, been uh, susceptible to um, this doing it for the love of music idea instead of actually being compensated financially for the work that they've really done. Yeah, and I mean, uh, you know, there's there's a lot of, uh, I, I guess, sort of upside or really constructive things with the call for a strategy for live music and growing that. But while we're on the um, some some of the surprising findings, I would say to me is that um, your report finds almost half of musicians feel that they have uh, affected hearing from their work and that only 15% felt safe at work was another finding from Support Act earlier this year. I mean, these are, are real areas of focus, I, I would imagine. Yeah, well, to do with hearing, I mean, oh my gosh, um, I think... Where, whereas people come to see gigs like once a week or something, artists can be in areas where they're around extremely loud noise. And we don't really talk about self-care in the music industry and for artists. There's this big attitude around that you need to suffer for your art or you need to be like completely in it and lose yourself to it. And sometimes that can be interpreted as putting yourself in circumstances which in any other industry would not be allowed. Um, and that's to do with sound management, with literal care of your body, whether that's wearing um, proper um, uh, earplugs for performing or wearing in-ears or even just asking for the volume to be turned down. Um, I think that's a real issue. Um, I even got told while, when I was going through uni and from other older musicians that if they could go back and wear earplugs a lot more, they would have. And that's something that some musicians decide to take on seriously or unfortunately um, result in hear loss from being in small rooms with loud amplifiers being amplified yet again through sound systems. I mean, and when I hear 15% of people don't feel safe at work, that doesn't surprise me, but also due to reporting around sexual harassment and bullying in the music industry, that number, I think, is a bit lower than what other reports are saying, but it doesn't come as a surprise to me that this happens. Um, when we think about the environments in which music performance happens, they're at clubs, they're at bars, they're at festivals, they're at places where people are intoxicated and also uh, audiences have 
this feeling that they own the artists that they like and can do whatever they like because that's their artist. Um, it doesn't surprise me that these things occur. Um, also in our sector, a lot of knowledge that people have around how to work in the music industry is through lived experience, and I think that as well lends itself to times where you feel unsafe or not knowing whether you should speak up or who to speak up to. And it's only really been through word of mouth that artists have learnt how to um, be able to navigate the music industry and where they have a voice and, um, and in places that they feel like they don't, where they can turn to. They're discussions that we're just having now. Yeah, and um, so often with, with these kinds of issues, it's it's the community that, that leads the, the change in, in outlook, the change in mentality and, and sort of, you know, demanding better conditions, um, you know, where, where possible, I suppose. And, I mean, there's been big discussions around sort of diversity on, on lineups at festivals and, and, and venues and that sort of thing as well and, and making venues much more sort of culturally safe for different groups too. And, and I suppose based on your experience, you know, spending um, I think around about a decade with Sasquatch and and also doing this work on the board of Music Victoria. I mean, have you noticed any substantial changes around things like, um, you know, safety and, and, and being sort of, I suppose, more inclusive and open in the Victorian music sector across the board? Yeah, I think in the last few years, I know Me Too was a very big changer of that, but there were conferences happening even before the Me Too movement started that talked about not only having diverse lineups, but actually diverse people in power to be yeah. able to bring their life experience to the music sector and make some effective change. And I think that's one of the reasons why I really love being a part of the board for Music Victoria, because they are a body that really are fighting for the little guy and big guy in our music industry to make sure that it's sustainable, not only financially, but through the longevity and not losing people who have been burnt out or worn out or scarred by their experience of this music industry. As a performer myself, I think I remember being on lineups and being on tours and, and being the only female potentially on that lineup or tour or festival within a band. And I've seen the change so dramatically um, in the last few years with touring festivals and, and lineups and seeing the way that they're diversifying, not only culturally, but with gender and the queer community and going above and beyond that. Um, even like discussions about um, disability as well. We're starting to see like festivals and advocates like Dylan Allcutt coming in and talking about their lived experience of this music industry and how we can improve it. And my hope is that through Music Victoria being such a great body and having such a great CEO um, like Simone coming in and talking with politicians to make effective change to um, ensure that our industry is secure and can keep doing the amazing things that it does and keep pumping out the amazing artists that it has. Yeah, and I, I mean, some of the the points made in priorities for the Victorian music industry white paper are, are really thought-provoking, I think. Um, one is around embedding minimum fees and diversity benchmarks across local, state and federal government music grants. Can you speak to that? Um, for those that don't know how the grant system works, how, how, how would that change things? Well, I think it means that we've got some stability, um, especially when it comes to being able to give out grants. I think uh, during COVID, one of the things was that we were given... Uh, Music Victoria and other arts bodies were given a certain amount of money to kind of spread across 
thousands and thousands of people, which was a really, really hard thing to do. And so this would kind of ensure that they are capable of paying artists adequate amounts um, for uh, grants um, because there's only so much that they can give. And I think every year it's a fight to get enough funding to be able to support people through grants because I think sometimes what the public doesn't see is the amount of money that goes behind an album or a performance. And so when we have to deal with these cancellations, it's really hard for artists to make that next step because they've invested so much right before then. And I mean, you know, that that is sort of one of many recommendations coming out of, of this white paper, I suppose, having put it out into the world, what are your hopes and, and the hopes of Music Victoria, I suppose, about what kind of change might be achievable from it? Yeah, well, I guess leading back into that grant, what we're hoping is that like uh, the minimum wage that musicians and live performers can receive at least $250 per person, or at least that there's insurance to cover them when a venue has to cancel an event because of a COVID outbreak or something like that. But musicians are not working at a deficit. Um, I guess around that as well, we want larger... um, investment scene, uh, investment schemes that we're seeing already in film and television sectors where we could help subsidise regional and outer metropolitan venues and programs that, uh, sorry, venues and festivals that are programming original local music and really bring it back to the Victorian artists. Um, I think as well as that, we want to have um, like something that we're working on already with Support Acts is a dedicated mental health service to help artists going through what they're going through, especially coming out of the last two years, and also have um, uh, resource future-focused industry upskilling so that people are learning where they can have a voice or they can learn how to be not only artists but run the business of being a musician and know how to do that without having to have those bad experiences, actually have capacity-building learning where they can find out about um, their rights, monetization, um, things around contracts, um, also being able to kind of unite networks and partnerships, especially within those independent and really small bodies, whether that's small venues or independent artists who are creating their own labels and trying to build their music career through that. Yeah, I mean, there's Um, so many great ideas in this, and it did make me think, you know, is youth a factor here too? I mean, talking about the the capacity building and also professionalism and the like, I mean, as a a new artist or a young person, you know, playing in gigs, knowing all of your rights when you're dealing with such different venues and owners and and the like, is, is that also part of what is trying to be addressed here, um, uh, Ketchy? Yeah, definitely. And I think from my own experience, I entered professionally into the music industry when I was 19 and was had contracts thrown in front of me, not knowing what my rights were or if the contract was good or not. So you find that there's a lot of artists, especially earlier on, who are signing on to things without understanding what they're actually agreeing to. Um, and the burnout of that can be so devastating that you lose artists to... Um, who have earned, potentially like earned money, money and lost it to bad contracts, who are then having to work outside of the music industry and just get to a point where they think, 
what is is it worth it anymore because life gets more and more hectic the older that they get whether that's with responsibilities or um, other things that come into play so a lot of that is uh, the infrastructure of supporting young people as they come into this industry with the know-how of how to write things how to understand law and their contracts what their rights are but also who are the bodies that they can turn to for support Um, I think that's a real major one too. There's so much in there and, um, and, you know, it's a really worthwhile report. It's been a real pleasure speaking with you today all about it. Thanks so much. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks for listening to this podcast of Triple R's The Grapevine, a weekly current affairs radio show putting local issues in a global context. Broadcast live on Triple R from Melbourne, Australia, every Monday. Hope you enjoyed the show and if you have any feedback or would like to connect, hit us up via the Triple R website.